Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. Before we start this episode, we've got some exciting news to tell you. If you'll be in the New York area, mark your calendars for June 24th. Our museum will be having a golf outing to raise funds to help us overcome the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic when we had to shut down for six months. And even though we are back open, tourism in New York City is at an unprecedented low and school children are still not taking field trips to cultural institutions like ours. Our golf outing will be at the prestigious Muttontown Club in East Norwich, Long Island, and will feature a morning brunch, afternoon cocktail reception, wine tasting, a cigar lounge, and of course, a silent auction, all to help us raise much needed funds. If you are interested in playing a round of golf on this Alfred Tull designed course, you could purchase foursomes or individual tickets. Or perhaps you would help us even more by becoming a sponsor. For information, visit our webpage at nycfiremuseum.org slash golf outing. Thank you for your continued interest and support during this challenging time. And now, let's start the show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the 1850 arrival in New York of the charitable Swedish Nightingale, the tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire in 1911, and the first 41 women joined the ranks of FDNY firefighters in 1982. Known as the Swedish Nightingale, Jenny Lind won the hearts of Americans and most of all, the New York firefighters. Born in Clara, central Stockholm, Johanna Maria Lind was a singing sensation in Europe by the time she was 18. Although she suffered damage to her vocal cords early in her career, she healed and became the protege of the talented Felix Mendelssohn. Famed promoter Phineas T. Barnum invited Miss Lind to perform in the United States in 1850. She accepted and began a two-year tour giving 93 concerts. Arriving in New York on September 1st, she was greeted by an estimated 30 to 40,000 fans. Her first two concerts in the city were held at Castle Garden, now known as Castle Clinton, at the southern tip of Manhattan. The proceeds of these performances were donated to local charities. $3,000, fully one quarter of the show's income, and equivalent to approximately $100,000 in 2021 dollars, was given to the New York City Fire Department's Widows and Orphans Fund. The note that was attached to the check Miss Lynn sent to the department is in the collection of the New York City Fire Museum. I will include a picture of it in this month's newsletter. So touched by her generosity, the firefighters took up a subscription to have a gold box made and inscribed as a gift to the soprano. It read, The Firemen of New York to Miss Jenny Lind, 13th September, 1850. In the corners of the box were the graphics from the membership and discharge certificates issued to New York firefighters in that era as well as being engraved with the flags of the United States and Sweden. It was said to be the largest gold box ever made in America, weighing 12 ounces. A year later, they also presented her with a tabletop bookcase. That is currently in the collection of the Museum of the City of New York. Lynn's act of kindness made an impact far beyond Manhattan. At least two municipalities in the United States are named Jenny Lind in her honor, one in Calaveras County, California, and the other in Sebastian County, Arkansas. Their fire departments bear her name as well. We should mention that the fund Miss Lynn contributed to is now called the Widows and Children's Fund 
and is maintained by the Uniform Firefighters Association of Greater New York. This early benefactor of the New York City Fire Department has long since been forgotten by many, but we here at the New York City Fire Museum are committed to preserving her story and the impact she had on the FDNY and its families. Hello everyone, I'm Ted Grant, President of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Fire Museum. As we all know, the world has drastically changed since March 2020. There remains a very difficult time for everyone. At the New York City Fire Museum, our principal sources of revenue have all but disappeared this year. While we normally host nearly 10,000 school children in our fire safety education program, school closures have caused that to cease. We are also visited by about 30,000 other visitors each year, many outside the metropolitan area, including firefighters from around the world. But tourism has all but stopped. And we host many events annually for community and other organizations that too has stopped. As a result, the museum is now under severe financial strain in our ability to keep the museum open, which is run by a nonprofit organization established in 1981. Our nonprofit institution is not funded by the FDNY or the city of New York. If you believe in our mission to preserve history, educate children on fire safety, and celebrate the heroism of first responders and the contribution of the fire department, please consider making a tax-exempt donation to our new crisis recovery fund at nycfiremuseum.org donate. It's hard to believe, but the Alliance of American Museums estimates as many as one-third of the nation's museum will be forced to close due to the unprecedented toll of the pandemic on cultural institutions that depend on visitors, members, and donors to survive. Please don't let the New York City Fire Museum be one of the ones to close. Again, you can support us by going to nycfiremuseum.org donate. Thank you for your generosity continued support, and for partnering with us to preserve, educate, and celebrate the history and tradition of the FDNY. Of all the fires that have ever struck New York City, one disproportionately impacted women. The 1911 fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company took the lives of 146 people, of which 123 were women, many of them teenagers. And its impact on women reached far beyond the death toll. Shirtwaists were basically a woman's blouse that was somewhat short, ending, as the name implies, snugly at the waist. The factories where they were made were often called sweatshops, where women toiled at sewing machines and cutting tables in expansive areas with bolts of fabric, as well as the scraps after cutting, were present by the ton, and they were all flammable. The fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company is believed to have started when a worker threw a cigar or cigarette butt into a scrap bin under a cutter's table. Smoking wasn't permitted, but clearly the rule was not well enforced. What began as an otherwise simple-to-extinguish fire on the eighth floor went unstoppable because the fire buckets that should have been full of water were empty. The fire rapidly spread upward. Sealing the fate of those that perished were locked doors, ostensibly locked by the owners to prevent unauthorized breaks during the 14-hour workday. What escape routes existed were jammed with fleeing and many panicked workers. As many as 62 decided their own fate by leaping from the windows. The first arriving firefighters found bodies already littering the sidewalk, 
some of which broke through the basement skylights, passing all the way down to the floor below. This scene was horrific. The FDNY, as well as people throughout the city, the nation, and the world, would not let those 146 workers die in vain. Soon after the fire, investigation, and trial, the New York State Legislature passed the Sullivan-Hoey Law. The law had sweeping effects, including creating a new Bureau of Fire Prevention within the FDNY that still exists today, and gave powers to the fire commissioner that were unprecedented. Going forward from passage in October 1911, the fire department could and would conduct inspections of all commercial establishments to ensure fire-safe working conditions and to verify compliance with new fire codes. These included installation of fire sprinklers, conduct of fire drills, and having unlocked outward opening doors. Additional laws required the removal of fire hazards such as rubbish, the use of fireproof waste receptacles, the protection of gas jets, the prohibition of smoking in the factory, the presence of fire escapes and exits, and the assignment of building occupancy limits. A total of 36 laws addressing fire safety were passed in the years immediately following the tragedy. The department also quickly produced no smoking signs to be posted in all such factories. They were printed in the three languages most prevalent among the workers at the Triangle Factory, English, Italian, and Hebrew. I'll include an image of some of these in the newsletter. Among the eyewitnesses to the fire was a 31-year-old woman looking up at both the inferno and the unthinkable sights of those jumping to their deaths. Her name was Frances Perkins. At the time of the fire, Ms. Perkins was a women's advocate and suffragette working in the New York office of the National Consumers League. With the encouragement of former President Teddy Roosevelt, she resigned from that position to become the executive secretary of the Committee on Safety of the City of New York. In 1919, she was the first woman to be appointed to the Industrial Commission of the State of New York, and 10 years later, Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt appointed her the first commissioner of industry in the state. When Governor Roosevelt became President Roosevelt, he nominated Perkins to be Secretary of Labor. With her confirmation, she became the first female member of the cabinet and the first woman in line of presidential succession. The Department of Labor building in Washington, D.C. is named in her honor so that we never forget those who lost their lives on March 25, 1911. An annual ceremony is held at the building that still stands and once housed the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Throwback FDNY podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we need your help. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, our main sources of income have declined significantly. In-person visits, school trips, event space rentals, and shop sales have all been impacted. We are now forced to rely more heavily on the generosity of our supporters. Please donate to the New York City Fire Museum to help us fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate. Visit nycfiremuseum.org donate to learn how you can support us. And now back to the episode. On December 16, 1737, the New York City Council, then known as the Common Council, passed an act for the better extinguishment of fires that may happen within the city of New York. It approved, quote, up to 42 strong, able, discreet, honest, and sober men who shall be called firemen of the city of New York, end quote. For the next 245 years, uniformed members of the FDNY were all men. 
but a series of laws and legal challenges changed all that and paved the way for a new era. On September 25, 1982, 41 women were sworn in to begin their careers in the FDNY's firefighting force. To say the least, their challenges were great and may have seemed insurmountable, but they persevered and showed their capabilities. To reflect this new era, the title of fireman was changed to firefighter by Department Order 142 on October 4, 1982, ushering in this permanent change. That same order changed a number of titles in the department to be gender neutral. For example, foreman became supervisor, pressman became press operator, etc. Unfortunately, and perhaps not surprisingly, the transition was not an easy one. In many respects, the department's senior management was unprepared for what to expect, and for everyone, it was a difficult learning experience. But with time, we now find ourselves at a point where we no longer have female firefighters, we just have firefighters, all of whom are New York's bravest in every sense of the word. The ranks of women took a major leap forward in 1996 when New York City Emergency Medical Services was merged into the FDNY. EMTs, paramedics, field officers, and chief officers brought a wealth of knowledge and experience with them and are now an integral component of the services provided by the department to the people of the Big Apple. The current chief of EMS is Lillian Bonsignor. It is noteworthy to acknowledge that the FDNY and fire service in general were bereft of women in civilian positions of management. This is now far from the case with many appointments at the highest ranks, including First Deputy Commissioner Lord Kavanaugh, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio, Chief Medical Officer, now retired, Kerry Kelly, and others. One of the department's Valor Medals is named after Christine Godek, who served as the first female Deputy Commissioner. The medal was endowed by Honorary Commissioner Dorothy Marks, a member of the New York City Fire Museum Board of Trustees. And I'd like to take advantage of this opportunity to highlight one of the members of the class of 82, firefighter Harriet Duran. Harriet served with Engine Company 33 for 15 years. She sustained severe burns at a fire in 1996 and spent many months in the New York Presbyterian Cornell Burn Center. In her retirement, Harriet has become an active fire safety educator and docent at the New York City Fire Museum. She is an outstanding asset to our museum and a valued member of our museum family. If you are interested in the role of women in the FDNY, I highly recommend the book, Bravest Women, published by the FDNY Foundation's FDNY Pro. You can purchase a copy at fdnypro.org. Also, the New York City Fire Museum has a photo display entitled, Celebrating Women on the Job. We invite you to visit and have a look. Finally, once again, I would like to remind you that the New York City Fire Museum is constantly on the hunt for artifacts that document the department's history. So in keeping with this episode's theme, I ask that anyone with artifacts related to the role of women in the FDNY who would be interested in having them preserved by the museum, please contact us via email at curator at nycfiremuseum.org. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. On January 1st, 1966, New York City Mayor John V. Lindsay swore in the first black fire commissioner of the FDNY, a man who ushered the department into what became known as the war years. So who was the first black FDNY commissioner? The answer can be found in our previous episode and in this month's installment of our companion Throwback FDNY newsletter. 
You can sign up for our newsletter at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with the help of the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. If you leave a building during a fire, close the doors behind you as you exit. This will help contain the fire. If doors are left open, the flames and smoke can travel more quickly. We can all do our part to be a partner to the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.